Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solem Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Ryan Diaz on the podcast. Ryan Diaz is a poet and writer from Queens, New York. He holds a BA in history from St. John's University and is currently completing an MA in biblical studies. His work has been featured in publications like Ecstasis, Premier Christianity, Dappled Things, and Busted Halo. Ryan's writing attempts to find the divine in the ordinary, the thin place where fantasy and reality meet. His first poetry collection, For Those Wandering Along the Way, was released in 2021. He currently lives in Queens, New York with his wife, Janice. Keep up with Ryan's work at avagueidea.com. That's www.avagueidea.com. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his website, his contributor page on the Solum website, and a link to his poetry collection on Bookshop, where proceeds go to helping local bookstores. Ryan, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here chatting. Yeah, honored to have you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Ryan Diaz. I'm a New York native. I grew up in Queens, New York. I currently reside in Queens. Um, I haven't left. New York hasn't gotten rid of me yet. I'm married. Um, I like to joke with people. I, I daylight as a pastor and, and moonlight as a poet and writer. And so my life is kind of balancing those two, those two vocations and trying to combine them into one. And so, yeah, that's the kind of the work I do, who I am. And I'm really excited to be with you guys here today, chatting about poetry, this new book and whatever else we get up to. Cool. Well, how did you uh, come to faith in Christ? Yeah. So I grew up in church. My mom was on a church staff, um, a church called Brooklyn Tabernacle in um, New York City. Uh, my father was a Christian. Um, and so I kind of grew in and around the things of God. Mm-hmm. Kind of grew up in a, like a non-denominational, charismatic tradition. And I think like many kids that grew up in that space, um, Christianity is so ingrained in your life that, you know, you don't really notice it's there. It's like asking a fish about water, you know, like what's water. And so that was my life. And it wasn't until I I hit high school, my parents sadly got divorced when I was 13. And with that came some faith struggles and some sort of just like, just like some a nominal faith, you know, you know, I was Christian in name, but I'd I never really explored it for myself. And then college came around, late high school, college came around and my life was a bit of a mess personally. And I remember sitting in a room and by myself, I was at home and just remember realizing like my life is pretty screwed up. I think I might have to give Jesus like a real chance. And uh, I remember praying, saying, God, like I'm going to live as if you're real and you're there and you're active and at work. And you know what, if I'm proven wrong, I'm proven wrong. And I'll just have to find some other way to deal with this stuff. And lo and behold, it began to work. And I began to experience the power and work of the spirit in my life. Um, I began to grow. I began to, you know, actually make strides in my sanctification. And yeah, it was like a slow slide into, you know, just I blinked one day and I was, you know, loving Jesus and, and, and following after him and trying to embrace the way of Jesus. And so that's how I kind of ended up in the faith. Well, you, uh, you have a lot of hats. Uh, you play a pastor, a poet, and a theologian. Um, so when and how did those callings come about? That's great. Um, so originally, um, some backstory, I wanted to be a historian. Mm. So I went to school for history. I wanted to, there's this fast track program at St. John's where you can kind of do, uh, do your BA history and then you can do like an MA PhD thing, right? And that was like my plan. Like I was going to go become a historian. And then um, I got wrapped up in college ministry at a place called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I kind of stubbornly got involved in ministry. I had always known in my life that, that there was some sort of pastoral call. 
I always felt a call to the pastoral vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like, like anything, anything that you feel is thrust upon you, you sort of reject as a, as a student, as a child, but it kind of came about where like, I, I, I couldn't get away from it. I tried to work other jobs. I tried to pursue other careers and the doors that were opening were doors in the work of vocational ministry. And, and, and so I kind of just, again, like stumbling into faith, I sort of stumbled into pastoral work, starting with InterVarsity, then eventually being as a youth and young adult pastor for many years. And now for the past few years, I've been on, you know, the pastoral team at a church in Brooklyn. And yeah, it's just, I kind of, the call was always there. And like anyone who understands that feeling, you can't fight the call for too long. And so I kind of ended up being a pastor um, in my vocation and I can't get away from it. Um, and I love it. Uh, the great irony is I actually love the work. I love, you know, what's, you know, the care of souls is, you know, I feel like my soul needs so much care. And so I, 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 I like to joke with, um, you know, people in our congregation that my job is simply to stumble along with you as we all try to, you know, press on towards the goal to win the prize. Um, the theologian sort of thinking intellectual piece has always been there in some shape or form. I was always a voracious reader. I always like to ask big questions. I went to a Catholic university. And so there's a lot of theology and philosophy classes that went alongside my history degree. So there was always this sense in which if I was going to have a faith, it needed to be a a faith that I, I could think through and be thought out. I'd grown up in a very, you know, emotional, kind of experiential form of Christianity, which there's no knock to it. I, I have great respect and I've, I've learned many amazing lessons and take a lot with me. But for me, that was never going to be enough. I've always been a sort of a thinker. And so I wanted to have a faith that was a bit more robust. I was a big fan of C.S. Lewis growing up. And so, and, you know, the idea of having a rational, reasonable faith just mattered to me. And so that, that, that exploration, that kind of like, kind of, you know, you know, cutting my theological teeth, so to speak, started happening in college. And um, honestly, being in, a, being in a history major, you have a lot of the skills to do theology um, um, in terms of research and, and all that stuff. And then really, once I got in, once I was kind of in ministry, I realized, you know what, like I need to, I've done a lot of independent study, but I'm a big fan of learning from professionals. And mm-hmm. so I decided to do a graduate degree in biblical studies. And like anyone who's doing a graduate degree part-time, you know, those, those degrees um, usually take long, they're supposed to be two years, but I started in 2018, it's 2021, but I'm almost done. Mm. Um, cool. And yeah, it's just a brilliant program with School Corps Reform Theologic Seminary. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, a, a, a theologian's, you know, nerd dream. And could, so- Could you repeat the school? I'm, I didn't catch it actually. Sorry, Reform Theological Seminary. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, they have a, they had a, they have a, their main campus is in the South, but they actually started a New York City campus about eight years ago. Um, great people. Um, and just, yeah, it's just a dream to be able to study and learn and debate and wrestle. Um, and so obviously as I'm doing that work academically, you know, that bleeds over into the, my writing and um, mm-hmm. my pastoral work. And then the poet in me, has definitely always been there. It's, you know, um, I love language. I love words. And so growing up, I remember um, my dad, um, he used to work in um, Manhattan. He used to work for the Army Corps of Engineers. And sometimes he would take me to his office. And there used to be, they used to have like these little like adult book fairs at his office, like in the lobby. Mm. And I remember he um, got me like my first copy of The Hobbit. And I remember being completely drawn in whenever the story would break for like the poems and the songs. And so for most kids, they, they would skip over that stuff and just want to get to the story. But I used to remember like trying to find the rhythms and the cadence and singing it out loud. Um, mm. And yeah, but I would, so I, you know, all my life been sort of writing, but really it started in 2020. Um, kind of, I had like a resolution, like, Hey, like I need it. I want to try to take this a little bit seriously. And there's a lot of reasons I started that whole project, but I started writing and stuff started getting published. I was like, oh, maybe I could like make a vocation out of this. 
And for me, all these three vocations, these three roles are all intertwined. They're not things that are separated out. They are not like three masks I wear, but pastors need to be poetic. They, they, they need to, you know, there's a great work um, called um, um, Pastors as Minor Poets, um, the subtext of the ministerial life. I forget the mm-hmm. author right now, but basically like what poets do is they, they, they write about reality and then they get at the subtext of reality, the things you often don't notice. And that's the pastor's job is to get beneath the surface of people's lives and into the subtext. Mm-hmm. And the theology informs all that, right? Like what we believe about God and ourselves informs our pastoral practice and our poetic writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these kind of vocations are jammed up for me. Um, and so they're not like hats I take off, but they're, it's like kind of like a constellation. It's just all, it all forms one bigger picture. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you've, you're, you're quite ecumenical. Uh, you bounced from a Catholic uh, university over to Reformed Theological Seminary, which is very, very not Catholic. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but what, I, what I've noticed in your own writing um, is that you are very informed uh, on the philosophical end for, especially for a theologian. Um, well, I, I should say a Protestant theologian. Uh, Catholics are, they're very um, up on philosophy, whereas most Protestant theologians tend to, well, honestly disparage it. Um, so do you, um, would you, would you kind of agree that you use uh, philosophy quite a bit in your theology? Absolutely. You know, I'm a huge, again, this is, I, again, I'm, I'm a weird guy. Um, I'm a huge St. Thomas Aquinas fan. Um nice. And, you know, I, I do believe in sort of his kind of envisioning of, of the natural sciences. And then, you know, the, you know, he kind of has this kind of, he has this image of sort of like this, this kind of tree metaphor where you have theology at the top, you know, you have faith, kind of what Anselm talks about, you know, faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. And so you have, so you have this kind of the, the highest form of knowledge and understanding is theology, what God reveals about himself. But to understand and to deepen our knowledge of that, God has given us the faculties of reason and imagination. Um, And so philosophy is that secondary science in which we can better understand what we know by faith. And so I think a great example is give people, you know, Christians have historically believed God is triune, but Mm -hmm. we, we began to flesh out what that means when we began to apply Aristotelian metaphysical categories to the Trinitarian theology and started talking about being in essence, right? And so mm-hmm. I think for me, those things go hand in hand. And I, I, I love my Protestant brothers and sisters, but I, I, am a, I am a Protestant who has much love for the Catholic tradition and mm-hmm. the great philosophers they have produced, you know, uh, Lombard, Bonaventure, Aquinas, um, and the list could go on, you know, those are, and that's just the middle ages right there, not including mm-hmm. all the incredible people they put out too. And so I think, yeah, for me, I think philosophy is a necessary aspect of theology. Um, and I think also too, like you also have this kind of debate between you have like theologians and then people who do biblical studies and that's mm-hmm. an also dichotomy for people, you know? And so biblical theologians are, or biblical people doing biblical studies are always complaining about theologians. Theologians are always complaining about people who do biblical studies. And again, these are all, these are, necessary delineations as in terms of when you go to school you need to know what classes to take <laughs> yeah exactly. but not in terms of actual thinking and writing and processing all these two all these are tools to help us explore mm-hmm. truth right um and i'm sure that most people listening to this will know this, the phrase but uh the old phrase is uh, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology right um so i mean i i don't see as a lot of people do today, like the two opposed, I, I see them as working together. Um, and it, it seems like, it seems like you've got a pretty good handle on that. Um, do you think that uh, your poetry is kind of an arm of your theology or is it um, kind of something different? Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, I was talking to a friend about this and there's a phenomenon I think that happens with Christian artists in particular mm-hmm. in which the artistic self is a separate entity from the believing self because I think we, we think that the believing self. So an orthodoxy is somehow this limiter that we put on art. And also we get like this trite 
kind of terrible Christian Protestant art, right? And again, a lot, there's a lot of terrible Protestant art. Um, but at the same time, I think that's to misunderstand art and also misunderstand belief. Um, I believe for me in poetry, I am a Christian. I believe in the story of Jesus. I believe in the incarnation and the death and resurrection. I believe in his eventual return. These, I believe this is the greatest story ever told. So if I'm going to be a, 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 a teller of stories in any sense of the imagination, why am I not pulling on these resources? It's just natural. It just happens. I don't have to think mm -hmm. about it. I just begin to think in that way. Now, what, what that doesn't mean is that, is that Christianity or Orthodox belief is always the subject of the work, but it right. is always in the substance of the work. Again, to use philosophical categories, the, 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 my, my belief in, in, in Christianity is not always in the accidents of the poem, but it's certainly in the essence. It's certainly in the substance. It's there. It's ingrained. And so for me, right. I think those are unnecessary dichotomies in terms of I have to be an art for me to be an artist. I have to put my beliefs aside to make true art. No, no, no. I think beliefs can inform true art. And mm -hmm. again, like I think there's a sense in which, you know, Robert Frost had this great line about poetry. He says, you know, trying to do trying to write poetry without form. And he's talking about poetic form is like trying to play tennis without a net. Right. Without the constraints, you actually don't have you don't have the art. And mm -hmm. so I believe that you could be say the same of, of, of po if you're a Christian, your poetry and or your writing or theology um, without that thing, what are you, what do you really, what, what sphere are you sort of working in? Um, right. And that's a very modern invention, this kind of delineation of self, like personal belief is this thing that happens to me in these very select private moments of my life. But if I'm going to engage the world in any way, I need to put those things aside. And so I think like, part of my poetic work is sort of like a rejection of that notion and like a reintroduction for myself too of integrating my belief in art. Now, a lot of your, your work uh, is particularly concerned with like a growing cynicism within the church toward faith and worship. And you've dealt with your, with, you've dealt with that yourself in your Christian walk. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Partly to tell a personal story first to kind of make a comment on I think a, the gro a growing cultural concern. So about 2018, um, I realized that my faith wasn't the same. Something had happened and I don't know what triggered it. And I could probably, you know, in 20 years, we would be able to point it all out. But I began to realize I wasn't just doubting. I think doubt is fundamentally different to cynicism. It wasn't just that I had questions. It's actually, I had questions and I presumed to have the answer to all the questions. And even when I arrived at answers, I was skeptical of the answers. And so it was this rat sent for me, cynicism and radical skepticism are, are kind of, you know, they're, they're wrapped up there. I think for me, at least they're similes. They're, they're saying mm -hmm. the same thing is that ultimately what I had, the place I had arrived at was I, I was not satisfied with any answer that anyone can give me. And mm -hmm. I was in this place where my faith had grown stale and cold because I, I had questioned myself into oblivion. I had mm -hmm. circled the drain. I didn't want to believe anything anyone else said. And I really didn't want to believe what I, the conclusions I came to. I was just in this, this, this deep, dark pit of just not being able to hold on to anything and call it true. It was almost mm -hmm. like a, it was like a, almost like a functional atheism in a sense where like I affirmed mm -hmm. and I believed in Jesus and I believed in, in, in my faith. And yet at the same time, I was just radically cold towards all of it. And then part of it, part of it was a sense of control that mm -hmm. if God is real and he's this, you know, Hebrew, the, the author of the letter to the Hebrew says, you know, our God is an all-consuming fire. Mm -hmm. There's this, there's a sense of God's immensity and transcendence that all of a sudden puts us into perspective. And I think for me, part of this kind of development of this, this cynical, radical skepticism 
this inability to hold on to anything um, and, to, and just to trust and obey and to take just have faith was just a reaction of my own life, realizing that an utterly transcendent God means I'm out of luck in terms of being in control of my life in term, mm. in, in the sense that I'm never going to be able to tick all the boxes. I'm never going to be able to have the final, the, the sense of finality that comes with, I have a grasp on this thing. You know, it's like the old saying goes, you know, God can be compre- comprehended, but he can't be apprehended. And that mm. distinction is so important, but there's a sense. And I think all of us, we want to apprehend, so that we can control. And when we realize we can't do that, the easiest, easier thing to do is just radically question it all. Mm-hmm. And so I'd kind of come to this place personally in my faith. And I think it was a combination of, of, of a bunch of things. But I think culturally, um, it's happening across the board in Christendom in this sort of this radical disbelief, this disproportionate disbelief in the things that have been handed to us these things we've been asked to take by faith. And it's not just doubt, because doubt is seeking answers, and doubt is willing to, to be proven. A, doubt, a genuine doubt is willing to come with questions and have those questions answered, or at least to, or at least to hold those questions with a sense of faith, that mm-hmm. even, though I, even though I don't fully have all the answers, I'm going to believe anyways. But what we're experiencing culturally is this kind of radical cynicism towards the, the tradition we've been handed. And it makes it impossible to be a Christian um, because we, we, are, we, we are Christians by faith. There is an element of radical trust in the person and work of Jesus, radical trust in, in who he is and who he's declared himself to be. And so just like I mentioned Anselm before, you have like this faith-seeking understanding. The reversal of that is we understand to have faith. And ultimately, the only, only way that ends is in cynicism, is in this, because we'll never be able to reason our way up to some of the core, core beliefs of the faith. We'll never be able to put God in that, that convenient box where we have an understanding of him. Because if we did that, mm-hmm. he'd cease to be God. Um, for him to be God, he has to be transcendent. And so I think culturally we're in this place partly because of the product we're the we're the product of the philosophical movements of the 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're a product of you know you know Nietzsche's nihilism and the kind of the existential threat that came with that. And we're also we're also in a culture where where radical questioning is celebrated um, and tradition is looked down upon and 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 you know. Anything held by faith is sort of um, is an unreasonable blind trust. And I think for me, and I think I was, my response to that was just, well, if I can't trust any of this, I'm going to have to just reject it. Or I'm just going to have to hold it at arm's length, at least. And I think we're seeing that happen in, in Christian culture today, where you have a lot of people growing up in the faith unsatisfied that there are some parts of God they'll not be able to master or know. And, mm-hmm. and as a result of it, just stiff arming the entire prospect of a transcendent God that's outside of my comprehension. And they're ending up in this kind of this rabbit hole of cynicism where their questions have questions of questions of questions until it's impossible to believe anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, my friend Doug uh, on one of the prior podcasts, um, I'm going to butcher his quote, but uh, he said something to the effect of, Faith is believing in what you have good reason to believe is true, which assumes that even though you might not be certain of something, and we're not certain of most of our beliefs, um, but it's still warranted from the evidence that we have to believe in whatever that thing is, in this case, um, our Christian faith. I think as a society, I think we're, 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 we're skeptical of the whole question of truth in general Mm -hmm. so the moment you believe that the moment you believe that truth is is actually something i can't comprehend or come to or at least slowly progress towards then Mm -hmm. any sort of intellectual pursuit any sort of questioning has no end 
Because if I can't apprehend truth, if I can't at least know it in some sense, if I can't know something to be true, then um, if there's no objective reality out there that I can, I can point to, then yeah, any project that requires questioning is doomed to fail. Um, you kind of have this phenomenon that you see it in like in Derrida and his um, kind of deconstructionism, you know, and his approach to literary texts. But in, mm. in, in, in his approach, right, the idea is that there is no objective meaning in the text. The, the meaning is, is, is given by the subject, the person reading the text. And so now you have infinite meaning, uh, infinite meanings for a singular text and what the author's trying to say doesn't really matter. Um, and if you apply that to like the pursuit of truth, then in, in this radical like subjectivism, then yeah, like any, how can, how can cynicism not be the result? <laughs> this isn't just skepticism and like, I'm trying to discern what is true. It's like, actually, I can't know what is true. So either I have to provide some sort of meaning, which I can't because I have to, I can't even trust my own sense of meaning. Um, mm -hmm. or, or I just have to, I have to pretend that the best thing to do is just radically be skeptical and cynical my entire life. And that's why I said like, you have the childhood adulthood metaphor in that essay which is like, cause we, I think we think that's maturity. I think we mm -hmm. think like a cynical attitude towards, to, towards truth, towards the Christian faith, even towards life itself is somehow this mature, intellectually rigorous um, approach to life where it's actually the exact opposite because you can't have intellectual rigor without any sort of destination, something we can apprehend. Right. Um, I think secondly, I think part of, what we're facing too is the reality that we have become more and more uncomfortable with the idea that our meaning is given to us, you know, that, you know, essence precedes existence, that who we are and who we are created to be and what the world is for, what the good is for, what the beautiful is for, is something that's a gift given by grace rather than something mm -hmm. we define for ourselves. And so once I, once I'm upset with that, I, the only thing I can do is either uh, utterly reject it or just radically question it. <laughs> and what we're, what we're trying to do there is again, it comes back to control. And so I think those two sort of approaches to truth and approaches to meaning leave people cynical because again mm -hmm. the only other option is just to is just to question everything until our questions have questions have questions have questions you, know, you talked a little bit about analytic philosophy before before mm -hmm. like the parsing of minute things of, well imagine if that process never ended you know imagine if we couldn't get back to the, like we had no atomic facts to go back to fall back on we had it's an endless black pit of despair and mm -hmm. i think for many unknowingly so we're talking in a lot of philosophical categories but just the experience of people losing their faith not because they have doubts but because they can't even believe what they believe because they don't even know if th if they can trust their own faculties for reason or truth it's 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 pretty deadly to to a religion that's based on putting trust in something exactly um I mean, Jesus was a big believer in truth. I am the way, yeah. the truth, and the life. So that essay, again, uh, Faith Without Awe is Dead. Um, why don't you tell us what that phrase means? Yeah, so it's obviously a play on James, where faith mm. without works is dead. And for me, what I realized to combat cynicism, what, it, what I needed was a renewed sense of wonder, a renewed sense of awe. And for me, awe and wonder are the capacity to be overwhelmed, the capacity to be utterly taken aback by the beauty and grandeur of God. And that is the, for me, that is the only way I can see myself combating cynicism is to allow myself to be utterly confronted with God's grandness and his mm -hmm. beauty and his majesty and his transcendence. And rather than radically question it, gracefully accepting it. And so for me, faith without awe is dead. It's kind of the formula. I cannot put my trust in my belief, right? That, that Greek word pistis. Um, there's an excellent scholar named Matthew Bates who kind of did a whole study on pistis, belief, faith, 
not just meaning something I mentally assent to, but actually something I, it's a form of loyalty or form of obedience. And he wrote, wrote an excellent book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, where belief isn't just, it isn't just I mentally assent to this thing, but I radically give my loyalty to it. And so faith without all is dead is kind of like this formula in which it says to have that radical loyalty, to have that mental ascension, to have that sort of, I, this, is, this is what I believe and put my trust in, put my hope in. That it has to be a sense of awe and wonder that says, that looks at God and says, I cannot explain this all. I can know it. I can know it to be true, though I can't explain it. And that wonder being the fuel for this radical trust that because this thing is so overwhelming, I'm just going to radically face it and trust it. And again, like I think we know this experientially, I think actually with art, where you look at a painting or you read a poem or you read a novel, you hear a piece of music and you, it's so awe-inspiring. It's so breathtaking that you know that it's true and not true in the sense that it's stating facts because we wouldn't read one of my favorite novels. I'm a huge Tolkien fan is Lord of the Rings. You know, Lord of the Rings isn't true in the sense that it's a documentary about the, what happened in Middle Earth, but it's true in the sense it's in it, through its beauty, you're able to discern and through its overwhelming kind of beauty and, and, and wonder, you're able just to know that there's something in here that speaks to how the life really is, how the world really is. And but it's the vehicle for that is not argumentation. It's not rhetoric. It's awe, it's wonder. By, by being awestruck, I'm knowing I'm being confronted with something that is greater than me, that points to something far larger than me. And so I think that's, that in that phrase was kind of my antidote to the, the, the inner cynic within all of us. Okay, well, with that in mind, why, why should we read poetry? Great, that's a phenomenal question, I think, in America today. You know, it's funny, um, being obviously publishing a poetry book, um, you know, Americans buy less poetry now um, than they ever have before. And unlike the UK um, and other parts of Europe, we Americans have had a, 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 a less, uh, maybe amenable relationship to poetry. Um, even though we've produced some phenomenal poets, um, you know, Walt Whitman, Robert Frost, um, and the like. Um, but poetry, I think, trains us for awe. It trains us for wonder. And ultimately, I think poetry trains us for experience with God. Because a poem is something that is both comprehended and experienced. Um, often, and it depends on how you're taught poetry in school, I think a lot of people, they're adverse to poetry, partly because of how they're taught. And because of how they're taught is that poetry is just a system of symbols that I need to crack. And so it becomes like, mm. you know, I don't know if you ever like, you know, got your cereal box when you were a kid, that toys and like, you know, the, the decoder rings and all that kind of stuff, right? Poetry mm. becomes a, 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 about, it's a, it's a code that needs to be decoded. And, you know, whatever, you know, reading method you were given is how you crack the code. And then, but that's not all poetry is. Yes you can read a poem and comprehend its meaning and look at the imagery and say, okay. So when we look at, um, <clears throat> we look at, you know, poems, we can look at them and say, okay, this is what it means. They're not devoid of meaning, mm -hmm. but at the same time, there's something that, that you just experience that you can read a poem aloud and let the words wash over you. And even if you don't have full comprehension, you can still appreciate and experience it. And I think that's, mm -hmm symbolic of a relationship with God and that God is someone who can be comprehended. He can be known, but also he's primarily experienced that mm -hmm. when David is writing in the Psalms, he's not always doing theological treatises on the nature of God, but he's talking about his experience of the divine, his experience of God's loving presence and his faithfulness, where again, it's interesting to, to hear some of, some of the Psalms because, you know, God is a shield. And God is a fortress and he's the, he's the, 
He's, he has expansive wings in which he hides his children. You know, he's a warrior. He's mm-hmm. one who rides along the clouds, like in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. And so you, those are sensory experiences. Those are experiences of love and goodness and peace that aren't, like, from that perspective, it's not something I'm figuring out about God or something I'm, it's, it's an utter experience of him that is drawing me into him. And, and actually by that experience, I somehow know him. And I think poetry is the same thing. You know, poetry, we can comprehend it. We can know, it, we can break it down, but also it's primarily meant to be experienced, to wash mm-hmm. over you, to work slowly on you. And so poetry does, trains us in our pursuit of God because it teaches us how to both comprehend something in a sense, we want to know what it's saying, but also we just want to be have, be, have an experience with it. And I think that applies to really all works of art. And then on the flip side, on a very practical pastoral approach, poetry teaches us to slow down mm. and to slowly work through things. We live in an age of instantaneous. We live moment to moment. We live like to like. We live commercial break to commercial break, though we don't even have those anymore because now you can just binge an entire thing, right? And poetry is one of the only mediums that says, I'm so packed full of stuff that if you're going to enjoy me, you need to sit down and slow down and read me over and over and over again. So from from a pastoral level, that is great training ground for scripture reading, for prayer, and for contemplation. Um, sitting down and, and meditating on the person and work of Jesus, meditating on the spirit and what he's doing in our lives. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why we should read poetry. <laughs> I think it is true training for the spiritual life. Any creative act, you know, from writing poetry to um, painting to figuring out the best way to, um, you know, organize your home, right? Any creative act is participation in the life of the creator. You know, mm-hmm. when, when you have the kind of the creation account, you know, God's first task for Adam is naming. And naming is, in some sense, it's not that Adam got a list of names and just had to, like, you know, he was doing, like, you know, like, when you take a test in school, you had to match the one to the other. Like a, mm-hmm. It was like a dog, like a picture of a dog, you had to match it. Adam wasn't doing that. He was exercising his creative faculties to give names to things and is participating in the creative process by Mm -hmm. naming. So I think all human creativity is participating in our vocation as the image of God by, we are like, again, I mentioned Tolkien again, this is my favorite, he talks about being sub-creators, that we are creators in our own right. We don't have the power to create from ex nihilo, from nothing, but we Mm -hmm. do have the power to name and to, Take God's good world and make it grander. And that's part of the partnership where if you think of God as this sort of reigning, ruling king, he delegates authority to humanity so that if, again, the biblical imagery, Eden's this garden. And the implication is, especially by the time you get to Revelation, that the goal of Eden was expansion, that all of God's creation be filled with his glory and goodness. And so every creative act, I think, is a participate in participate participation in that helps us understand our vocation to not just do that with our art, but then also do with our lives, with how we live, how we engage with another, love our neighbors and our enemies. And then secondly, I think in writing poetry, I mentioned this earlier, but poetry teaches us to look for the subtext, the, the, you know, the thing, um, things hidden beneath the surface, Gerald Manley Hopkins, the um, Jesuit poet, um, Mm -hmm. English Jesuit poet says, you know, the, the, creation is charged with the grandeur of God. It's the sense in which all of creation is charged with a sense of God's presence and power and purpose. And so when I write poetry, it's teaching me to see the mundane, to see the normal, to see the everyday, and then to see the glorious that's hidden underneath and to kind of unearth it. And so I think that's great training for life. It's sort of poetry trains a sacramental vision of the world. In, in the sacraments, we see bread and wine, and we, they're not just bread and wine. They're, they're the body and blood of Christ. In baptism, the, the simple act of bathing is transformed into renewal and rebirth. Um, and so that kind of vision is a vision we need for our whole, our whole lives, to be trained to see God 
in the ordinary, in the mundane, that he's not just in the, in the fire and in the earthquake and in the whirlwind, he's in the still small voice. Right. Yeah. Um, and your, your conception of all that is, is pretty, pretty different than how most people go about it today. Um, and I, I do want to read a, a portion of your, uh, your essay here, how poets see the world and their vocation, because it gives some context. So in there you write, in the West, the poetic task has been linked with emanation, the belief that all inspiration, beauty, and truth flows from a transcendent source beyond the material realm. In the poet's imagination, poetry came with a givenness, a sense in which the poet was nothing more than an oracle. Do you think that um, that conception of uh, art as emanating from something objective, do you think that that's changed in, in, West, in the West, at least over the years? I mean, yeah, I think, um, you know, when you have modern, like the arise of like modern modernity and literature, you have this kind of whole, whole rejection of the transcendent. Um, mm -hmm. uh, any notion of the transcendent was viewed as trite, you know, is why, you know, T.S. Eliot was praised for the wasteland. And then people, some people at least, you know, were like, the four cantos which is where he gets this is after his conversion to christianity he writes these um mm -hmm. that they're kind of like he's kind of rebelling against the modernist tradition which said you know what like we have to deal with the here and now we have to deal with re and the question is, we have to deal with reality and modernist literature is realistic in the sense that it's we're not we're ethereal spiritual realms are for the romantics and for the middle ages we have to, after the reality of World War One, we have to deal with the reality. We have to deal with what we're seeing on the ground in our lives. We don't have room for the transcendent because the transcendent is at at best uh, an artistic explanation of you know the phys physical realities. At worst, it's this sort of idealism that you know distracts us from the harsh realities of the world. It's escapism, you know, at worst. And so, yeah, that's definitely changed. And so, you know, even today, you know, I think it's changing a bit now. Um, I think especially, you know, you've always had a strong, um, in, the, in um, both Catholics, I think Catholics have, have had a stronger literary tradition where, you know, there's, there's still poets and people out there now kind of rejecting um, that sort of like that reaction of modernity to poetry where we had to get rid of the noumenal and just deal with reality. I think a great example is a guy named Malcolm Geit, um, fantastic English poet and priest out of Cambridge. And he, all his poems is dealing with the transcendent and the good and the beautiful. So I think that's changing, but I think it has changed. I think what was common form for the ancient Greeks and people in the middle ages, even the romantics is now, is, is that's either your pigeonhole is that spiritual poetry or it's just, you know, that's cute, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that you have hit, hit on something there because um, we definitely Catholics have had a stronger art presence. And I think it's because um, they're not wholly concerned with what's functional. Yeah. Um, they're just they're concerned about about embracing the noumenal, being as close to the numinous as one can be. To quote Elizabeth Genovese from our last podcast, and in a very ironic way, Protestant art is actually pretty modernist because it's uh, it all all it's trying to do is proselytize and to make uh, well to, to serve the function of, of evangelism, whereas. Right. Most cat well, not, I don't want to speak out of my out of my depth. I don't. I'm not overly familiar with Catholic art, but it seems at least at face value that it's more concerned with making good art um, and arriving at its its Christian conclusions from uh, the art itself, as opposed to presupposing some message it wants to bring along with it. Yeah, I think like you say, Protestant art is pragmatic. You know, it's, exactly. It's yeah, trying to get the job done. Um, and the job is, you know, salvation of souls. Um, and I, I, I agree with you there that there is, there's, I mean, you know, look at our churches. I think, you know, worship is the great revealer of our priorities. And I think if you look at, you know, Catholic, the Catholic liturgy, 
you look at like high Anglicanism, some forms mm-hmm. of more classical Lutherans, there's an emphasis on beauty for beauty's sake is good. Um, right. Because if God, like, like St. Thomas Aquinas says, you know, God is ipsum essay being itself, then God is, the be- God is beauty itself. God isn't beautiful. He is beauty. And so any connection to the true and the good and the beautiful is closer connection to God. Um, mm. And a great, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, again, talked about, you know, developing like a proto-evangelium. That the stories we tell, like, we don't need, like, the story of the gospel can exist in this proto-form that when someone reads it, they get a sense of God's goodness, his love. They get a sense of the reality of, 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 of deity, that there, that there is more to this life than the material. And that's mm-hmm. like a proto-evangelium. It's, it's this proto-gospel that goes before the gospel, that gets the heart ready for the gospel. And C.S. Lewis, when he discusses his conversion, this is kind of the role Northern mist, mists, huh, sorry, Northern myths played in his conversion mm-hmm. in the sense that as he read the story of Balder the Beautiful, the dying and rising God of Norse mythology, he talks about how that this, this is training his imagination. He said he talked about reading George MacDonald, um, yeah. the great Scottish preacher and writer and poet. And he says, you know, MacDonald baptized his imagination before he ever approached a baptismal font. You know, mm-hmm. he, that it prepared his heart for something. And I think, you know, pragmatic art is about getting the job done, not trusting that God can providentially move through the experience of art itself. Well, in the same essay, you note that uh, if our poetry comes from the graciousness of God's giving, then the poetic vocation comes with responsibilities. So why don't you tell us what those responsibilities are and how they can fulfill them? Yeah, I think um, I wrote this poem that's in this collection that just came out called The Poet's Mantra. And it's kind of, a res- so what Wendell Berry, the great, um, the great American poet, mm-hmm. um, wrote a poem called How to Be a Poet. And this is my sort of response slash inspired by that poem. But at the end of that, my poem, um, The Poet's Mantra, the last line is, say something true. And actually, just for context, I'll read that last stanza Mm -hmm. just to to give us some context. I'm just going to pull it up in my copy of the book. Here we go. So this is the last stanza of The Poet's Mantra. Be still now. Let the words come. They will come. It may take time. Don't rush. Be still. Listen for the still small voice, the whisper on the wind. And then when you hear it, say something true. And so if we believe that all inspiration, that all creativity is a gift from the creator, then our responsibility is to say something true. And, and, and that, that means that we're responsible for saying, saying true things about the world, true things about each other, true things about God. We're, 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 and that means, I think in one sense, I think it means making honest art, um, mm-hmm. art that speaks to either your personal reality or the reality of the world we live in. Um, but also art that also points beyond itself. Um, that art that says something true about the world or true about your experience also says something true about um, God's reality, the, the penultimate reality, um, the, mm-hmm. where all reality flows from. Um, and so, yeah, so for me, um, I think that would be, um, that would be what I mean by like, the responsibility is to say something true, to speak truly about our world and God's good creation, speak truly about ourselves and ultimately allowing that to speak truly of God himself. Right. Um, I can't remember which poet said this, and, um, but he said that the main criteria of good, or main criterion of good poetry is honesty. Yeah. Um, would you say that... Um, Honesty, then, is the fundamental uh, task of poetry. 
Yeah, I think it's the fundamental responsibility. Um, and again, I think when people hear something like honesty, like we don't need to think like Sylvia Plath confessional poetry, even though Sylvia, Sylvia Plath is a brilliant poet and there's a place for confessional poetry. I think that we're not, that's not thing where we're saying honesty. We're saying about say, bear your soul and say, and say what is true. It, again, it, not in some confessional sense, but in, in the sense of like, mm-hmm. See, say the things about the world as you see it. Say the things about yourself as you see it. Say the things about God as you see it. Um, again, it does, truth also doesn't mean to tick all the doctrinal boxes in your poetry. Because if you're in a place of struggling with faith, right? If, if that's the case, there's no lament poetry in, in scripture then. If David can't say, God, why are you absent from me? Why are you so far from me? Well, Truth is, we know God is omnipresent. He's not far. He's close to the mention of his name. But David's true, honest experience is that God is absent. He's gone. He feels as if he's abandoned. And if David can't say that, then that's not really truth. If he has to sort of conform to like, you know, give a caveat, God, you feel absent, but I know you're there. The experience of feeling of God's absence feels very real. And, right. and it's real in the sense that like experiences are real, whether they are in some, like whether they're rational or not, right? Like when you experience rejection um, from someone, even though you've, you've probably done, there's nothing about you that should make you feel like, hey, like I'm worthy of, no one thinks they're worthy of rejection, but you feel it, you experience it's real in that moment. And that's to kind of say something true. I think we're talking about the honesty, the ability mm. to speak truly about you and truly about the world and truly about God. Well, wrapping up here, Ryan, um, why don't you tell us about your new book coming out for those who wander along the way, recently released by uh, Whipfenstock? Yeah, um, this is a book I wrote over 2020. Um, I read and write in the preface and I kind of give a little context to the book. Um, 2020 started hard for me. Um, and at the end of 2019, I took a massive step and left a church I had been working at and really family at for a very long time um, to kind of just follow where God was going with my life and my calling. Um, and my wife and I kind of took that step um, and we kind of took it without like a safety net, one of those moments. Um, and I was a little depressed in the beginning of 2020. I was feeling that cynicism. I was first beginning to wrestle with that and trying to come to a resolution. And I remember going on a trip with um, some friends and it was like January 4th, 2020, pre-pandemic before we knew our world was going to be transformed forever. And um, I bought a little Moleskine notebook. I said, I'm going to start writing again, Um, just for me, just to deal with this cynicism, just to process. And then the pandemic struck and I had even more time on my hands. And I began writing again and it became this collection. And the title poem is for those wandering along the way. It was originally published in Ecstasis. And it's a, po- it's a poem about what poetry was doing for me. Um, there's a refrain at the last, um, the refrain throughout the poem, it says, these are the songs we sing on the way. The songs mm. referencing poetry, the poetry is the, is the, is the language of our souls. It's the, thing, it's the things we say to ourselves as we're trying to make our way through the journey of life. But the last kind of two lines says, for when you don't know what to say, these are the songs we sing on the way. And it's kind of what the whole collection is. It's a collection of, of songs meant for people who feel like they're wandering, who are going through it, who are trying to find a deeper meaning and reality in their lives, who are trying to connect deeper with God and, but who are also unsure where they're going. Um, you know, there was this old practice in ancient Celtic Christianity where they would go on pilgrimages that had no destination, but they would trust the spirit of God to guide them. And I think this poet, po- poetry collection is a little, little bit like that. It's just poems I was writing as I was wandering, um, as I was, you know, trusting God to guide me. I didn't have an end in sight. And this is kind of the source of that collection. And it's a diverse collection. There's a lot of topics, a lot of things talked about. But I think that theme of trying to make sense of it all as we're wandering along the way runs throughout the book. Right. 
um, being published by Webfinstock, that's that's quite a feat, especially for a first book. Um, how what was that like for you? Um, I mean, Webfinstock is they have a kind of an open reading um, thing um, where you can submit manuscripts. I, and actually, it started with my wife. My wife um, challenged me. <laughs> she said, "Ryan, you have a lot of ideas. You write a lot, but you need to finish something." And so, mm-hmm. like any wise husband, I listened to her and I compiled this book and I just on a whim, I sent it in to Wipfensock and lo and behold, they partnered with me in it and um, yeah, published it. So yeah, again, I I have no experience in the publishing industry. Don't really know how all this works. Luckily I have a good friend who works for Penguin Random House. So I was like, Hey, can you look at this contract? All that kind of stuff. Um, you know, make sure, you know, again, I don't know anything. Um, but the process was fairly like, you know, you do stuff on a whim and then you never expect to get the email saying, Hey, we would like to offer you like publication. Um, and so, yeah, um, it was a pretty cool journey working with them on this collection. My good friend, um, Josh, he designed the cover. He's, um, his Instagram's at sword and pencil and he did a beautiful job. He's a brilliant, he's actually funnily enough. He's another person who's like an artist theologian. He's a brilliant artist and also a brilliant theologian. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it was a really cool process to see like, um, something that had been, you know, a pipe dream in the beginning of 2020, like come to life. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It's, uh, it's well earned. Um, now a common thread that I've seen, uh, through your poetry is like an emphasis on rhythm. Um, is it, so first off, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think, um, for meter is really important for me. Um, whether it's really strict meter. So like there's some, there's a quite a few sonnets actually in the collection. Um, so obviously with a sonnet, right. It's usually an iambic pentameter. Um, so, or even if it's even, I have some poems that are a bit more free verse, but even those poems have a, a rhyme, have, have a meter to them, have, have a rhythm to them. And I think for me, um, poetry and music are, are closely related. And so for me, it's not, a, poetry is not just about sounding Oh, sorry, sorry. It's not just about saying good things or deep things. It's all about the sound and the, and the, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, I have like, so I love like alliteration. It's the, the sound you make as you say things that, that give it an extra sense of beauty. That's why I talk about poetry being experienced. I don't just, it's not prose. I don't just read it just to get some information out of it. I'm experiencing it. And even prose can do this. You have some brilliant prose writers who, who say things and it's almost musical. Um, I was the kid um, when I was doing my undergrad, my research papers, I had many professors accuse me of being flowery because for me, just communicating in language is always involved. We could say this plainly or we can come up with a good, beautiful metaphor. And obviously I was, you know, first year undergrad doing history degree. They're like, yeah, you know, we don't need that. We just need you to say the dates um, that this thing happened. <laughs> but and so now, like, it's always funny whenever I do academic writing, um, I have to like, I work so hard to shut that down. It's, it's impossible. But I also like, here's my, if you're listening, and you're an academic, and you're a theologian, philosopher, whatever, write beautifully. I, I've, I've slogged my way through too many treatises that are brilliant in their ideas, and just terrible writing. Um, so bland. Um, you know, like, People used to do philosophy and do it through poetry. The ancient Greeks used to do it all the time. That's just my two cents. Anyways, the point, <laughs> the, the point being is, yeah, rhythm and meter and rhyme, it all has to do with the sound. I, you know, poetry is meant to be read aloud. So mm-hmm. for me, I, a poem is done when I read it aloud. And it's not just saying things that are good, but it sounds good, too. Right. Um. Yeah, growing up in Queens in that uh, music culture, you think that that kind of influenced you in your poetic style? Yeah, I, I think in an indirect way, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of hip hop, right? I grew up um, a few blocks away. Uh, well, not a few blocks, but, you know, like 10, 15 minutes were like 50 cent. Um, was around, I grew up near Hollis, Queens. At, I lived near Hollis, Queens, run DMC. Um, I went to high school two blocks away from where Nas was from. So. I mean, any kid growing up in New York City, especially if you're, you know, Hispanic or African American, like hip hop is just a part of the culture, it's part of the language, and so yeah, I think hip hop played a huge role in. Yeah, I, I think hip hop, hip hop artists, are some of the best poets in the world, 
Um, it's why they teach about Nas at Harvard now, right? They're, 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 they're doing stuff. And I think they're reclaiming a lot of storytelling and communication through that. So yeah, I think it has to be an influence, right? You know, we don't, and then at the same time, I was also the weird kid also like listened to Bob Dylan too. And um, one of my favorite artists is like this old Scottish indie folk singer. Um, and um, yeah, so in name Doogie McLean. So like, I, yeah, those are all, I'm sure those all play influences on my writing. But yeah, certainly I tried to be a rapper at one point in my life. Um, it's a dark, dark side of my life um, in the sense that I'm really ashamed of it. But every kid, if you grew up in New York City, everyone tried to be a break dancer, graffiti artist and rapper at some point in their life. So I'm safe. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I tried to be a rock, a rock singer back when I was a kid. So, you know, Incredible. we all have that very embarrassing period. We can start a band together. <laughs> Definitely. It would be a new metal band. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, in conclusion, then, what do you hope that the book gives to its readers? Um, I think two things. I think I hope, um, I think they learn to enjoy poetry. Again, like, there's a phenomenon with academic poetry. It's so unapproachable. And it's brilliant. Like, I am not, I, I don't, you know, there's something like, a, I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about, you know, like, you know, they're, they're like silver tongue poets and gold tongue poets, you know, like, so like Dante would be like a gold tongue poet, right? I'm, I'm certainly in the silver or bronze category, I think. Um, I have a lot to learn and a lot to grow in, in my poetic ability. Um, so there's some brilliant academic poets, but also in their brilliance, they're also unapproachable um, for the, for the, if you don't, if you didn't do an MFA, right? Like, and so I think for people, I hope, I hope like it teaches them to love poetry it's why I actually use a lot of the classic forms because I think if you never approached poetry before, at least the forms give you a guide on how to read it. Um, so yeah, I think I hope people learn to enjoy poetry. But I also think too, I hope it, like I said before, I hope it helps their sacramental imagination. I hope they learn to cultivate that poetic vision of the world that God is truly ingrained in all good things. And mm -hmm. if they just take the time to stop and look and listen, they'll see beauty in but like I talked about, you know, fantasy and reality meeting that, that, that reality that, that God is present in it. Um, and that good, that beauty is present in, in the ordinary. And so I, I wrote a poem about my radiator. Um, and again, it's because like one day my, my radiator was screaming and popping and my house was way too hot because New York apartments get deathly hot. And mm -hmm there was something in there underneath it. This, this is not just a radiator. This is something else happening, something else going on. I hope people learn to see like that. Even if they don't end up becoming poets, I think it profoundly helps us in our engagement. It helps us how we see people. We begin to see the reality of the image of God and people we would never think we'd associate with or like. And I think that's actually the mission of Jesus, right? To, to make disparate peoples one. And I think also it helps them us to realize the, the, the sacred is not something that happens in the four walls of a church is somewhere out there, but the sacred is in every, every moment. Awesome. Well, Ryan, why don't you uh, close this out by reading some of your poems? Awesome. Yeah. Um, since I just mentioned the radiator, I'll give it a read. And then I, I probably, after that, I'll read the poet's mantra, just um, to, if for any poets out there listening to be encouraged, where's the radiator? Here we go. Um, here we go. All I could hear that morning was the squeal and pop of the radiator as it rumbled and roared out of its long slumber, letting off angry hisses as hot steam searched for a way to escape. It lumbered there in the corner, inanimate yet alive, a still dragon curled and waiting, a totem of fire and heat, Hephaestus's forge nestled between the sofa and bar cart, curiously out of place in our New York apartment. That's the radiator. And this is um, the poet's mantra. Do not go a day without creating, making, or shaping, turning words into woven wonders, and terrestrial terms into celestial lights. Never let the ink run dry, let it flow. So all the canvas is carved with ink and spirit 
and all the truth that has gone unsaid. Do not be silent. With the voice of your father, speak and call forth the word who will give you the words when the ink is dry and your voice is quiet. Be still now. Let the words come. They will come. It may take time. Don't rush. Be still. Listen for the still small voice, the whisper on the wind, and then when you hear it, say something true. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, and just uh, thank you for your contribution in all these fields. Um, you have a great mind, and we just uh, look forward to seeing um, seeing what life has for you. So, thank you very much. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.